Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Well, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Luke 7, 1 to 10. And the title of the message in Luke 7, 1 to 10 is A Marvelous Faith. And when we look at the word marvel in the text this morning, what it means is to wonder or to be astonished. And as I thought about that word, marveled, I thought about uh, what is it in my life when I look back, what are some of the things that I really marveled at? And I thought back to the time when uh, I was nine years old and my dad used to take us uh, to see Yankee games in the summertime, and my brother Vinny and I. And one of our favorite players, or actually our favorite player was Mickey Mantle. And you know that as a child, when you went to see a baseball game, you wanted to catch a ball that was hit into the stands. And we went over the years to a number of games, never caught a foul ball, home run, or anything else. And then one day in 1965, we were at a game with the Yankees were playing the then Los Angeles Angels, they were called. Now they're called the California Angels. And in the fifth inning, Mickey Mantle got up. We were sitting on the foul side of the left field foul pole. Not many people were there that day. On the fair side of the left field foul pole, the stands were empty, pretty much empty. Mickey Mantle gets up and he hits a long fly ball, home run into the left field stands. My brother runs, Vinny runs, and he's able to get the ball before a couple other kids who are running for it could get it. And he got the ball, the Mickey Mantle home run ball. And my dad, uh, after the game, brought it to the Yankee clubhouse, and they brought it in, and Mickey Mantle signed it, and he signed it, best wishes, Mickey Mantle home run number 456. The, end, the score of the game was one to nothing, the Yankees won. And that was a marvel as a nine-year-old boy, the only Time, only ball we ever caught, our favorite player. They win the game one nothing. He signs the ball. Vinny still has it today. And that was a marvel. I marveled one time when I was on a missionary trip to uh, Armenia. We had arrived at night. We went to Yerevan, the capital, in the middle of the night from the airport. And uh, it was dark. Next morning as the sun rose, I got up to have some time with the Lord, have my Bible, walked out onto the pastor's veranda, and right off in the distance as I looked was Mount Ararat. I hadn't seen it when we drove in, it was nighttime. Just in the short distance, Mount Ararat, the Ararat Range. Guess what passages of scripture I read that morning from my devotional time? Genesis 6 to 8. And then to look up and say the ark landed on the mountains of Ararat and just looked, that was a marvel. Seeing my four sons born, uh, each of them being born, marvel. And when we marvel at something like that, it's indicating something very important to us, something important. Well, as we look into the word this morning, we're going to see this occasion on which Jesus marveled, and we're going to look into what it is that he marveled at. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. 
Lord, we thank you for your living word. I thank you for this gathering of believers. Lord, I ask that you would uh, teach us through your spirit this morning, that we might grow in our understanding of you, our concept of you, and be changed by it. I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you as their Savior, that today might be the day of their salvation. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives, and we thank you for everything in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'm going to do is read through the verses we're going to look at this morning, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, and then we'll go back and we'll break them down. Verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Jesus marveled. He marveled. That should cause us to pause and wonder what it is in this nameless man, this Roman centurion, about his faith that caused Jesus to marvel. There's only one other time in Scripture that it's recorded that Jesus marveled, and it's recorded in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus marveled at the unbelief of those in his hometown of Nazareth. So both times that it's recorded that Jesus marveled, it has to do with the issue of faith. Now, when Jesus turned and said, in all of Israel, I've not seen such faith as this, it would have got people's attention. Because most of the people he was talking to that he turned and looked at were Jewish. And the Jews looked upon Gentiles, which the Roman centurion was, a Gentile. They had a certain attitude towards Gentiles, expressed in one of the sayings they had, the only thing a Gentile is good for is to keep the fires of hell going. That's how they looked at Gentiles, many of the pious religious Jews. So that would have caught their attention, don't you think? When Jesus said, in all of Israel I've not seen faith as with this man. He marveled at it. Just some time later, a few days later, Jesus would say to his 12 that were traveling with him, O ye of little faith. And those that were traveling with him heard Jesus speak on many occasions. They, in a sense, had more knowledge than the Roman centurion, but not a greater faith at this point. 
So it tells us that a great faith has more to do than with just knowledge of the word. There's more to it than that. Title of the message this morning is A Marvelous Faith. And we're going to look at the qualities that make for a marvelous faith. And there's another scripture that gives us the outline for this passage of scripture. And it's Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read it to you. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. And Jesus is saying to people, to you and I, there's nothing that you can really do for me. I've made heaven, I made the earth. What is it that you can do for me? But notice, the Lord says, but to this one I will look. To him who is humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. There's a similar passage in second, as recorded in 2 Chronicles 16.9. The Lord's eyes go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of the one whose heart is loyal to him. And what these scriptures are telling you and I is this, that the Lord, there's nothing we can do for the Lord, but the Lord is looking to use those whose heart is his to use them in a great way to carry out his will. That means he's looking in this congregation. He's looking in the congregation I pastor. He's looking for those whose hearts are his and he will use them in a great way. And you've probably seen evidence of that here in your congregation. But he continues to look and he wants our faith to deepen and he wants to use us in a great way. And if we could put the outline up on the screen this morning, here is the outline for our message this morning. It's the last part of Isaiah 66, 2. The outline for the qualities of a marvelous faith. Humility, contriteness, and an awe for God's word. Or another way to put it, submissiveness to the authority of God's word. Well, let's go back, let's go back and let's look at, let's look at our first few, couple of verses here and break them down and look at it. Verse 1, again, when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, Jesus is teaching that's recorded there in Luke chapter 6, when he finished that teaching in, the, in front of the people, most of them being Jewish, says he... Uh, he went to Capernaum, and Capernaum is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was Jesus' unofficial headquarters, if you will, for his Galilean ministry. That whole area, their industry, their prime industries were fishing and agriculture, and again, a heavy Jewish population. So he is now in, going into Capernaum, and a Saturian slave who was hardly regarded, highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. Roman centurion had a slave. 
Now, a Roman centurion was a man in charge of 100 Roman soldiers, kind of what would be today for us a sergeant in the military. They were the bravest of the soldiers, and again, they were in charge of 100 men. He was stationed to Capernaum to keep law and order, again, a Gentile, and he has a slave. Now, Matthew has a parallel account of this event, and in Matthew's, he's called a servant, this young, this uh, slave. And when you take Matthew's account and Luke's account, and you, use, you see the Greek words there used for servant and slave, we have the picture of a young boy, slave boy, servant, a young servant, slave of this Roman centurion, a young man, perhaps a boy, perhaps 10, 12 years old. And he has some type of disease, Matthew relates, that it causes him paralysis, and it torments him. In other words, it's very painful. We have here in Luke that he's about to die from this disease. Now, as we see here, there's elders that have come on behalf of the Roman centurions, it tells us in verse 3, to approach Jesus. If you read Matthew's account, he writes it as if the Roman centurion comes himself. There's no contradiction. It's phraseology. In other words, these guys, these elders, and then later on we'll see friends, there's others that the Roman centurion sends, represent him and bring his word to Jesus. And Matthew has a condensed version, as most of his accounts are, and he, he relates it as if the Roman centurion came himself. Be like today if we heard the news reporters report that the president sent a message to Congress. They might say that. And what might have happened is the president gave a message to one of his representatives and they went to Congress and gave the message to Congress. So there's no contradiction there at all. It's the way the phraseology of it. But these elders come and relate this need to this Roman centurion. I mean, to Jesus on behalf of the Roman centurion. Now, the Roman centurion wants his slave to be healed. He says it's highly regarded. He hardly regards him. And let me say that this is very unusual for that time and place and for a Roman centurion to look at the slave in that way. Very unusual. In fact, here are some of the thoughts about slaves from back in that time. Aristotle wrote, a slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. The Roman law expert Gaius wrote that it was universally accepted that the master possessed the power of life and death over the slave. Still another Roman writer, Varro, maintained that the only difference between a slave, a beast, and a cart was that the slave talked. This was the attitude towards these slaves. But look at the Roman centurion. He hardly, highly regards him. He had the right in Roman law to put the slave to death. But he highly regards him. He wants him to be healed. Unusual. Unusual for that time and unusual for that place. And what we have here is a picture of a man who is putting aside the privilege of his position to serve and meet the greatest need of the object of his affection, who is the slave. He's putting aside his privilege as a Roman centurion to meet the greatest need of this young man who he highly regards. Does that remind us of something? 
putting aside position to meet the need, a great need. Let me read out Philippians chapter 2. Paul wrote this in the letter to the Philippians. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus left his place of high privilege and position, humbled himself to come and meet the greatest need of the object of his love. You and I, people of all time, our greatest need was to be redeemed. And he left his position of privilege. And we have in this Roman centurion that attitude that we know as humility, that is called humility. He is demonstrating a great humility. The word humble in the Greek in the New Testament means to make low or to have a modest opinion of oneself. Humility is not thinking too highly of oneself, and neither is it the Eeyore complex, thinking too lowly of self. It's a modest opinion of self, and I think one of the best definitions is it's not thinking too highly of self or too lowly, but not thinking about yourself at all. And so in this Roman centurion, we see this, this humility as he wants to meet this need of this slave boy. I want to read a story to you from our history. It's called The Heavy Log, true story. Once upon a time, a rider came across a few soldiers who were trying to move a heavy log of wood without success. The corporal was standing by just watching as the men struggled. The rider couldn't believe it. He finally asked the corporal why he wasn't helping. The corporal replied, I am a corporal. I give the orders. The rider said nothing in response. Instead, he dismounted his horse. He went up and stood by the soldiers as they tried to lift the wood, and he helped them. With his help, the task was finally able to be carried out. Who was the kind rider? The rider was George Washington, the commander-in-chief. He quietly mounted his horse and went to the corporal and said, the next time your men need help, send for the commander-in-chief. You see, humility causes us to look at our position and our privilege and consider how is it that we can serve the Lord and others with it. And we see this quality in this Roman centurion. We see it in him. Humility, one of the qualities of a marvelous faith. But let's go on. Let's consider our next verse. When they came to Jesus, this would be the Jewish elders, they earnestly, earnestly implored him. That means with lots of vigor. They earnestly implored him saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him. He's worthy. If you have the New King James Version, it says deserving. Same Greek word. 
And he's saying he's worthy for you to have him do this. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue, their place of worship. Now, that's highly unusual. These are Jewish elders looking highly upon a Gentile, a Roman, the occupying force, the Romans. They were hated. But they're looking at this man differently. They're saying, you, he deserves it. You do this for him. He loves our nation. And he built us this synagogue. Now, look at the Roman centurions. Now, that word worthy there, or deserving, that Greek word means due reward. They're saying to Jesus, he's earned this. You should do this for him. You should heal this servant. That's what he's saying to me. That's what they're saying to Jesus. Now, look at the Roman centurion's response. Now, Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to represent him saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy. For I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. They're saying to Jesus, he's worthy. He's saying to Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And I'm, it's, I'm not worthy to come to you. Now, he uses the first time in verse 6 there, where he uses worthy, he uses a different Greek word. And the idea there, that Greek word for worthy means he's not sufficient or fit. He's not sufficient or fit for Jesus to come to him. Sound like the gospel message? And then when he uses worthy again in verse 7, the Greek word he uses is the same one the Jewish elders used in verse 4. And he's saying, I didn't do anything to deserve it. I'm not worthy based on what I did. I'm not worthy based on who I am. I'm not worthy based on what I did for Jesus to come to me or to me to go to him. Wow. Are we worthy of our salvation? Is there anything that we can do? Is there anything that we can do that the Lord owes us? Nothing, right? Nothing. This attitude this Roman centurion has. You see, he has a sense of his unworthiness. He has a sense of his unworthiness. When we look at the Matthew account, he uses the word Lord twice in addressing and talking about Jesus. And then in verse 10, in the Luke passage, we see that in all of Jesus, Jesus saying, in all of Israel, I've not seen such faith. And what we realize when we put that all together is we have a man who understands who Jesus is. That he's Lord God. He understands that. And in understanding that, he knows he is not worthy. He knows he's not worthy. He has this view of God that's bigger than the others at this point. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, there's the account many of us are familiar with in Luke chapter 5. The disciples were out all night fishing. They caught nothing. Jesus the next morning comes along, tells them to put the, the couple of boats out to sea. Jesus will teach from those boats, and then he will tell 
the disciples to throw, take the boats out a little further, throw the nets in. And they said, Lord, we've been fishing all night. And one of the things we have to understand is that they fished at night back then. They caught very few fish during the day. They didn't catch any at night. Jesus is telling them to throw the nets in during the day after they went all night. They did it, and it tells us the number of fish they caught was causing the nets to break. And as they pulled the fish into the boat, causing the boats to almost sink, when Peter saw that, he said, Away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He saw Jesus in a bigger way, and note what it brought out in him, a sense of his what? Unworthiness. To be in the Lord's presence. And so we see this in the Roman centurion. He's contrite in spirit. D.A. Carson wrote this. Here was a man who had the heart described in the first Beatitudes and would therefore attain the promises, the second clauses of the Beatitudes state. The Beatitudes, remember Jesus? said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, that's mourn over their sin, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, was the Roman centurion merciful. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. He saw Jesus for who he was. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He made peace with the people that hated the Romans, and the Romans hated them, and he had, there was peace there. And I like, especially the, in, as applies, applies to the Roman centurion, he was, he was meek. That Greek word is used to describe uh, a broken horse. Think about a broken horse, a horse that is broken for service. When that horse is broken, it is as strong as it was before it was broken, but now the strength is directed towards service. You see, the Roman centurion was a meek man. He, he was a powerful man in position, but he used his strength for service. And so he had contriteness of heart. You see, what we see in the Roman centurion is a contriteness that we see amplified in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah catches a view of God's glory seated on the throne, the Lord seated on the throne, you might be familiar with this passage. He sees the Lord high and exalted and lifted up, and around his throne the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. And it tells us that Isaiah said, when he saw that, he said, woe is me. And he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. You see, when he saw the law of glory, Lord of glory, he saw more of his sinfulness. And it broke, brought to him contriteness. Brokenness, repentance, and out of that came purification and growth. And so we see this in the Roman centurion. We see this contriteness of heart, and contriteness, contriteness means to be brokenhearted over sin. 
Guys, contriteness increases in us the bigger we see God, the more clearly we see God. The bigger our view of God becomes, the greater our contriteness grows. And out of that comes brokenness and repentance and confession and forgiveness and growth. Christian maturity comes from realizing at a deeper level how holy and perfect God is and how sinful we are. How sinful we are. Contriteness, a quality of a marvelous faith. Humility, a quality of a marvelous faith. Now let's go on here at the end of verse 7. Let me read verse 7 again to get the flow of that. For this reason, I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. He's sending the message to the Lord. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. He has a remarkable understanding of the authority of the Lord's word. Remarkable. He says, you just say it, and it's done. He understood that the main issue was not so much what was said, but who said it. Not so much what was said, but who said it. The Lord said it, and if the Lord said it, it's going to be done. If I have any value to you here this morning, it's only as I say the words of the Lord and teach them accurately. It doesn't matter what I say. It's what the Lord says. I like the way he says that, don't you? Just say the word and my servant will be healed. It's kind of a short prayer. Sometimes a simple short prayer expresses more faith than a long rambling one. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Many a time a prolonged prayer is muttering unbelief. And to go about one's business would be to take the Lord at his word and honor his veracity. Hmm. You just say the word and it will be done power of the Lord's word. Great encouragement for us, right? Realize that the Lord does not call us to get results. He calls us to be faithful vessels of his word. Just say the word. Just speak the word of God. The word of God does the work. I forget who the preacher was, but they asked him one time. It might have been Spurgeon. They asked him, how do you defend the word of God? He says, I don't. It's like a lion. Just let it out of its cage. Just say the word and it will be done. Now note at what point Jesus now marvels. Note at what point. And it's significant. Lord's timing, perfect, of course. Look how the Roman centurion explains why he says, Lord, you just say it and it will be done. Look at verse 8. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. 
And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that was following him and said, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Now, that's quite a statement, isn't it? In all of Israel, I've not found such faith. Now, I propose that, also, that includes John the Baptist. Later on in this chapter, we see that John the Baptist wavers a little bit in his faith. Great man of faith, not taking anything away from him at all. But he will have doubts while he's in prison and send word to Jesus. And Jesus sends word back to John. You know, tell John you know, that I heal the sick and remind him. In all of Israel, I've not seen such faith. And he marvels at this. Notice the Roman centurion's reasoning. Notice again in verse 8 how he says this. He says, I'm a man placed under authority. See, the Roman centurion was under the authority of Caesar and then of, uh, under the authority of his immediate commanders. So he was a man under authority. And someone in authority must be under authority or they can be a tyrant. But he understood what it meant to be under authority. And then he says here, uh, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my slave do this, and he does it. And those under him put themselves under his authority and submit to his authority and the position that he's in. And he sees that as a military man and his understanding of that as a military man gives him the understanding that God is the ultimate authority. And so if God says it, it's done. If God says it, it's done. <clears throat> One of the things about a soldier, and if you've been in the military, you know this, if the commander tells you to do something, does your opinion matter? Does how you feel about it matter? No. The obedience is put above opinion and feeling. Imagine if General Eisenhower said on D-Day, okay guys, whoever feels like getting out of these boats and charge onto the beaches of Normandy, that's fine. Whoever doesn't, you just don't have to do that. If you don't feel like it, he understood. He understood from his experience in life, and he was able to recognize, because of that, he was able to recognize the ultimate authority, who is the Lord. <clears throat> Jesus had, was under the authority of who? The Father. Okay. His Father. He came to do the will of him who sent him. You see, learning to submit to God's ordained authority equips one to recognize and submit to the ultimate authority. If you look throughout scripture, you see that all authority that's in place is ordained by God. Romans 13, Paul writes, submit yourself to the governing authorities. Guess who was emperor at that time? Nero. And what the word of God tells us is that we're to submit to authority as long as it doesn't cause us, tell us to violate God's word. That's the only time we don't. 
And then we have an authority structure in the church, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 17, submit to the authorities in the church. You guys, I know, are in the book of Ephesians. As you go at the end of, you're in Ephesians, if you're in Ephesians 5, you go into chapter 6, you see the authority structure with husband and wife, parents and children, employer-employees. I mean, it's the slave-master relationship that's the concept of the employer-employee. And submitting ourselves to the ordained authorities equips us to recognize and submit ourselves to God's authority. Teaching our children to submit to authority is going to equip them to know the Lord better and submit to the authority of his word. It's the training ground for that. You see, the Roman centurion recognized God's authority because he submitted himself to the authority in his life. That's one of the reasons he could recognize it. And so it's important that we teach our children that. Rebellion is a destructive part of our sin nature. Rebellion. It shouldn't be nurtured. It reaps destruction. You see it in families. You see it in businesses. You see it in the government. You see it in the church. We can have all the knowledge of God's word in the world, but if we have a rebellious attitude, it can cause destruction. We can misuse it. And so you think of Numbers chapter 16 and Korah's rebellion, when Korah led a rebellion against Moses. And Moses wasn't a perfect man, but... Imperfection in leaders does not justify rebellion. Who was Korah ultimately rebelling against? The Lord. Who was a child ultimately rebelling against when they rebel against their parents? The Lord. He's the one that put these authority structures in place. The Roman centurion states his understanding of authority based on him being a military man, and he's able to recognize the ultimate authority. And it's at this point that Jesus marvels, marvels. Well, our last verse, verse 10. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. He was healed on Jesus' word. Healed. Now, this passage of Scripture is not stating or teaching or advocating that every time we ask for healing that the Lord is going to heal. He certainly can heal. He just has to say it, and the healing takes place. What the main point of this is, is pointing out the authority of God's Word and our need to submit to it. If the Lord says it, we should say, Lord, it's done. Paul, certainly a strong man of faith, prayed three times that the thorn in his flesh might be healed, whatever it was he was struggling with, and it wasn't. He certainly was a man of faith. And so here the Lord is wanting to teach us it's about submitting to his authority. That's what's being emphasized here, the authority of his word. Guys, this morning, consider this. 
Consider the God-given potential that you and I have and believers have today for this marvelous faith. You see, Jesus is looking to this one I will look. He's looking to the Roman centurion to use him as an example of a marvelous faith. But this Roman centurion had limited teaching at that point. You and I have the whole Bible. The Roman centurion, this was before Pentecost. He didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the whole counsel of God, the Bible. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have 2,000, nearly 2,000 years of church history and testimony. The potential we have to have this marvelous faith. And it's something we should desire and pray for. But let us never think we've attained it. Because once we think we have attained it, we don't have it. Remember, humility is one of the qualities. <clears throat> it tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Trembles at his word. Remember, the Lord looks to the one who trembles at his word. You see, when we're saved, we don't have to work for our salvation, but Paul is writing, let's work out our salvation in fear and trembling, in awe of the word of God, submitting to the word of God. Fear and trembling there does not mean crippling fear, but an awe, a reverence, living out his word. <clears throat> the fear of the Lord. Trembling at his word is really about the fear of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is the word of God become flesh. When we tremble at his word, we're showing reverence and awe for the Lord. The word of God. Have you been awed by this in your life? Think about what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And when Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians, when he says, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, mirror is referring to the word of God. The glory of the Lord is the character of the Lord. And he said, we're transformed from glory to glory. Have you had this happen to you? Have you been reading the word of God? You've been in the word of God and the, word, the Lord opens up the word to you and it gives you some direction that you've been looking for or conviction of sin in your life at that moment or an encouragement that you need and you go, wow, the Lord is speaking right to me. That's a glory to glory moment. You're changed when that happens. You're transformed when that happens because you, your, your concept of the reality of God is deepened. And there's a moment of awe. You may not recognize it as awe, but you go, wow, or you go, wow. Or your eyes go like this. And you're transformed from glory to glory. That's the awe of the Lord. 
You see, and when that happens and we see God in a bigger way, what it should lead us to is to recognize more of our sinfulness. And we confess our sin. And he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we're purified and we grow. And out of that purification comes more humility. We have a more accurate view of who we are in the eyes of Christ. And he can use us in a great way. He can use us in a great way. In your life right now, has he been speaking to you? Has something been coming across to you when Pastor Joe is teaching up here on Sunday morning or you've been listening to the radio or you've been reading your Bible or any combination of that or a friend comes up to you? And you know the Lord is telling you something. It's a repeated theme or a repeated thought. And have you submitted to that? Are you having the attitude of, Lord, you just say it and it's done? Maybe you're single here this morning, you're a single person. And there's a relationship in your life that is leading you away from the Lord. And through the word of God, or through some teaching that you've heard, or on the radio, or whatever, a combination, the Lord's been speaking to you about that. But you've resisted it. The Lord's wanting to say, just say it, Lord, and it's done. I'll do what it is you want me to do. I'll walk away from that relationship. Just say it, Lord. It's not about my feelings. It's not about my opinion. You say it, Lord, and it's going to be done. Or perhaps you're married, and there's some tension in your marriage. And the Lord's been speaking to you to forgive or to serve the other more. But Lord, I don't feel like it. He wants to say, Lord, you just say it. And it's done. Or there's a habit in your life, a sin in your life, and the Lord's been speaking to you about it, and you're still holding on to it. Lord, you just say it, and it's done. I'll confess that, I'll repent that, I'll put the accountability in my life to do what it is you want me to do. Or perhaps the Lord is calling you to service. He's been calling you to serve and you haven't answered it. Lord, you just say it and it's done. Or perhaps you're a leader in service and he's calling you to be a more a servant leader, to lead by serving. Lord, you just say it and it's done. Or perhaps you're in a ministry. You're serving in a ministry. And you're at odds with maybe the leader of that ministry because you have an opinion on the way something should be done. And it's different than his opinion or her opinion. And you want your opinion done. And the Lord is saying to you, just submit. It's not a doctrinal issue. It's an opinion issue. Lord, you just say it. And the word's done. And it'll be done. Do you see? Because in submissiveness and obedience, the Lord will give us a bigger picture of who he is. And that's much greater than just having our opinion put forth. 
And I want to encourage you as we close this morning, look at any opportunity in your life to obey as an opportunity to see the Lord in a bigger way and to grow in a marvelous faith. Any opportunity to obey. You know, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And I will love you, and my Father will love you, and we will disclose ourselves to you. He'll show himself to you in a bigger way. And that's really what it's all about, isn't it? And the bigger he becomes, the more frequently with confidence we can say, Lord, you just say it, and it's done. And it's done. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.